I will say once again, the, the, the difference in looking at Revelation for me this time is that I'm not fascinated with the, the symbolism. I'm really fascinated with the Revelation and how it's pertinent to us right now. What's he trying to tell us about us right now? It has been an interesting study to do that. I've had to slow down. I've had to stop in places where I would have normally raced. And it really got me started when I was realized that when God told John to send a copy of all these letters to every church. And the only reason I think he would do that is because they could have learned about themselves from just the one letter that, that was, had their name on it. Why would he send the rest? So, because there were messages found in every one. Messages that they needed to hear being sent to the other churches. So I think all seven of these are very relevant to us tonight. The church at Thyatira is very specifically tied to the Roman Catholic system. With the rise of Catholicism, and I don't make this parallel, but this is what the commentaries say, that this time period represented by the church at Thyatira really depicts the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, that's a connection I'll let you make. Again, I'm seeking what is relevant for you and I right now. Thyatira was the smallest and I guess really the least important of, of all of the churches that were written to. Its most significant thing was that it was, it was made up of craftsmen or tradesmen, probably more trade passing through Thyatira than most cities of that size. Where else do we hear this? Where do we find this? In, also in the scripture. Lydia, you know, the seller of purple was from Thyatira. So, you know, she was one of many, many tradesmen, craftsmen who were doing things, but it wasn't a prominent city in any other way. It was, again, it was the smallest of the seven, but God had many things to say to this small church. We'll begin in, uh, in Revelations 2.18. In history, it's very interesting. We have, there is no record of the church at Thyatira ever suffering any negative consequences. So again, history is leaving a, just a vacuum with us wondering what actually occurred in this church. It never says that they suffered any religious persecution. So beginning with verse 18, and unto the angel of the church at Thyatira write, these things saith the son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already held fast till I come. And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I shall give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says unto the churches. This one is packed full. The church at Thyatira, as we've talked about it from the beginning, is known for its corruption and is an adulterous church. But we find some interesting things as we walk into this study. Looking at verse 18 first. And unto the angel of the church at Thyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God, who, who hath his eyes like unto, unto flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So the Lord identifies himself as the one whose eyes are like a flame that can penetrate and distinguish all things. And the Son of God, eyes as a penetrating judgment from Revelations 1.14, to reinforce the one son and the one worthy of worship. You know, it's interesting for what Kate shared on Sunday morning when I finished preaching about repentance and about what happened to Esau. He found no place for repentance. He said, even though he sought it through tears, the lack of repentance, the lack of someone changing their mind, cut them off from the blessing. And if we get the concept of repentance down right, we will understand that we live a repentant lifestyle, always willing to change our mind, always willing to set aside that which we misunderstood to pick up truth and to pick up revelation. We're designed to be people of repentance. I had a lady in my office this week and I told her as we were kind of working through some things, I said, you need to repent. And it just shocked her because in her mindset, she has the old thought of repentance. Well, I why do I have to admit I did wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. But let me teach you what repentance means. And you'll recognize what I'm asking you to do is to change your mind. But in our stubbornness, if we refuse, if we become dogmatic about those things, when God's trying to reveal truth to us, then we cut ourselves off from blessing that he had intended. It's not even conceptually hard to imagine. As I said last Sunday morning, I could line up a thousand people to tell you that you're pretty one by one to come and say you're pretty. If in your mind you're ugly, I could line up 10,000, it would make no difference. If I, I could line them up and tell you that you're smart and teach you great lessons and have a, a thousand people come and tell you that you're smart, but if in your mind you're dumb, it would take 10,000 and nothing still would happen. For me, they, they could have come and told me a thousand times, you're rich. They could have given me thousands and thousands of dollars, but if in my mind I'm poor, there would have been nothing that they could have done. It takes that change of mind. God's going to talk to this church in Thyatira massively about this question of repentance. But when, when I finished, you know, it was kind of, I, I didn't really know how to finish. And I'm always so grateful that, that this is a church that realizes that, that this, a Sunday morning service doesn't hinge on me. It hinges on us. And for Kate to see what she saw. So she stood up here and said, you know, what the vision that God gave me reminded me that when Amanda and Rhea were here and they were prophesying over Ryan and over Kate, they said, you hold in your hand this sword of fire and you have by that power the ability to cut away those things off of people that aren't true. And she saw that vision and having people say, you know, out loud, what it was that, that God was revealing to them that they knew was not true. The things that they were holding on to that were not true and she's cutting it off spiritually with this sword of fire. But when we read this in the passage, that these are the eyes that Jesus say I have. Please understand that these eyes are penetrating so that the things that are most hidden to us, things that we have compensated for, adjusted to, just kind of dealt with, that God has no desire for us to just cope with these things, to just repress these things. 
he has a great desire in all of us to bring these things to the surface at a very appropriate time. How does he do it? He does it because he has eyes that can penetrate, eyes that can just righteously look into places that we have long covered up. And he lovingly brings them to the surface. When we start reading these things, we recognize that it sounds fierce, but the righteousness of God allows him to see and to bring to the surface those things that he knows is, are really hurting us. So it says he who has eyes are like flames of fire that penetrate, but also distinguish all things. He has that ability with those eyes to cut away those things that are untrue and to actually help us recognize those things that are. So the son of God has this nature. There's, a, there's an old saying in Jewish culture or Jewish thought to be the son of a person or actually the son of a thing if in, this, in some situations, then you have the nature of that thing of whom you were the son. So we read about the, the sons of thunder. What nature did they have? They would have the nature of thunder. So when it talks about Jesus saying, I am the son of God, he's telling them, I have the very nature of the God who is my father as the sons of God, whose nature do we have? It shouldn't even surprise us. What does James tell us? We are the partakers of what? His divine nature. What difference does that make? All the difference. Because again, why would I want to raise my kids in a home filled with grace instead of performance? Why would I want that? Because what does God's nature want? He wants to, for us to know. It's not performance, it's grace. So we're simply partakers of this divine nature that God has bestowed upon us. How can I love me when I know what I've done? Because I have the nature of God. How can we forgive? We have the nature of God. Kindness, we have the nature of God. Verse 19, he says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith. And I know your patience and I know your works. And I know the last to be more than the first. So he says, I see this ever increasing. So where I am at least a little bit surprised in a church that is known for corruption and adultery, that we find this list that is a list of accommodation, a list of recognition. And he says, it's, I'll not only see it, but I see it in ever increasing measure. So one of the interesting things that I found in this church at Thyatira is that we have this dynamic reality captured here and what he's about to say about Jezebel. This is in the same church. What's the great warning? What would Jesus warn any of us about? What's going to happen if you keep tolerating this Jezebel spirit? You won't be reading these things very much or very long. So he's recognizing them and praising them. And, but he then immediately says in verse 20, notwithstanding or nevertheless, or despite all the good that I just said, I have a few things against you because you suffer that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. It seems here that Jesus is speaking specifically of a literal woman, someone that he sees in the church, not symbolic, not expansive. He, he, he writes this, speaks this, like he's talking about a particular woman who's carrying a particular spirit. The strange part is here that whoever this woman is, it says that the Christians seem to believe her and hold her in high regard as a prophetess. An interesting church with this mix going on within the same body. We know Jezebel's story from 1 Kings chapter 16. 
we know about Jezebel and how she and her husband, King Ahab, led the people into idolatry and into idol worship. The worst, however, was that they changed their God. They made Baal their God. Why should this resonate to us? Because I will tell you, and you know this as well as I do, there are many, many churches who have changed their God. How do we define God? What's our typical answer? What's our description? God, the Holy Spirit. Can he be God without a part of that? No, can't. What happens if you drop the Holy Spirit out of that description? I'm not talking about not, not saying the words. I'm talking about taking the Holy Spirit out of the teaching. What if you take it out? What have you done? You have changed gods. Stacy introduced an interesting question to me several months ago. Why can't we say that the God of the Arabs is the God of, of Israel, the God of the Christian world? Why can't we say that? You know, we, we can point back to this common place back there where God is God. Well, what's the most obvious answer here? Why can't we? Because I don't care if there was complete agreement on the fact that we're worshiping the same God, the Father. But right after that, I don't care if, if every detail of that lines up. The minute that you depart from that and they don't acknowledge God is the Son or God is the Holy Spirit, you've changed God's. It's not the same God. We can't just say God's not just God the Father, so we can say, that, well, it's the same God. It's not the same God because we can't define God without including Jesus. We can't define God if we take away the Holy Spirit. And anytime we do, it is a different God and we have the spirit of Jezebel. That's serious. So there's great warning in here. I see all the good stuff that you're doing, but you changed out the gods. And that's what Jezebel is most well known for. She killed the prophets. So she brings confusion to God's people as we read here, as well as to God's word. She brings in idolatry. She calls herself a prophetess. She desires to preach and teach. What would Jezebel want? She would not be content to just to get to be different herself. That Jezebel spirit wants to perpetuate what she believes. And so I have to do that. I have to create that in someone's mind. And I'll tell you again, this is serious to me. For me to sit with someone in my office that's been going to church the majority of their life. And they ask me, what does this mean, the judgment seat of Christ? And I'm sitting there describing something. And there, there's this look on their face like, why in the world didn't somebody tell me this? Why didn't somebody tell me that, there, that there's this day that I'm going, there's going to be a day of accountability, not for whether I'm saved or not. There's going to be accountability for the life that I've lived. Why didn't somebody tell me that? Why didn't somebody tell me what it means to have a life that looks like gold, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay, or stubble? You change the gods. You change them out and say, I'm, I want to worship a God who's fascinated with performance. That's a different God than the God who wants to see himself in us that's God. We don't see these, these things in teaching as anything other than just differences of opinion. There are much more than just differences of opinion. When a church assumes the authority to teach without the Holy Spirit, they take on that Jezebel spirit. When a church decides what the curriculum's going to be, if a church decides what the doctrine is going to be, we take on the Jezebel spirit and it's destructive. You've heard me say it and you'll hear me say it a thousand times. I said it Sunday night when we were talking about be careful who you let feed you. And we asked this question, what is feeding people today more and more than anything else? And the immediate answer was social media because we can be fed approval. 
What's the most obvious thing about Facebook that would cause you to be fed there? Think about it just a second. What's happening there? You're being validated. You're finding approval. You're being fed. Is there danger in it? Absolutely. Even in the most positive uses of it. I'm not saying as a tool, I'm not making a judgment. But if you're being fed by it because of people's responses to you, then you'll begin to make compromises sitting at that table. Be careful who feeds you. And I, and I told you Sunday night, do not let me feed you. Don't sit at this table and let me feed you. It's dangerous. If you don't know that the Holy Spirit's speaking, don't come to the table. Because someday, as I said Sunday night, someday I won't be your pastor. What will happen if you've been feeding off of me? You'll starve to death or something will happen. What if you've been being fed by the Holy Spirit? Well, matter, you can find him anywhere, everywhere you can be fed. Do not let yourself be fed from what I can say and what I, can, what I know or what I can do. I'm not worth it. And it's a dangerous table to set when you let the faster feed you. Another relevant truth from here. We have no right to speak on our own. We have no right, as I said earlier, to develop doctrine of our own. And we should have no rights of our own. Again, conceptually, not what we're taught, but absolutely true. Jezebel has committed adultery in that she has joined herself to the world and to the world systems. How could this happen? How could it happen from within a church that someone joined themselves from within the church to the world systems outside? How could Christians give themselves up to such things? Seduction. It looks attractive. What does the world system say? What does a bigger church mean? What happens when a business builds a bigger building? Well, they must be prosperous. They must be successful. What happens when a church builds a bigger building? I would absolutely say sometimes there is a need. I don't take away that reality. But I want to tell you, the concept of this church is full. Why don't we go start another one somewhere where people don't have the opportunity? No, because it doesn't feed our ego. It doesn't do what I want it to do. It doesn't look successful if we stay in this building doing these things and actually send half of our people away to go somewhere else and have a church. Can't do it. It doesn't match what the world says that we're supposed to value. Verse 21, and Jesus says, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. A Jezebel church, a corrupt church that has done this will not repent even though great time and opportunity has been given. Again, if we see this church as harmless, we will miss this great warning. Jezebel killed the prophets of God. Don't ever forget when, if this is a literal woman or he's talking about something symbolic, please recognize that there was never captured in the Bible a greater killer of the people of God than Jezebel. She killed the prophets of God because she wanted to determine what was right and wrong. So the next thing that happens in verse 22 is Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to handle this. He tells them what he's going to do, and then he tells them what they need to do. Verse 22, behold, I will cast her into a bed and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Again, before Jesus tells the church what to do, he's going to tell them what he's going to do. This condemnation sets for her a very divine trouble. Her condition will not improve. There is no coffin, only a sick bed. Again, okay, relevance. He's giving churches right now an opportunity to change their mind. He's giving churches across the world an opportunity right now to accept the Spirit of God. I am hearing this and encountering this 
in many, many places where people are hearing or getting glimpses of the truth, what it means to hear body, soul, and spirit. Again, I had another one of those just this past week. Someone for the first time hearing that. The danger of it that's still bothering me is that they're learning it intellectually. They can gather it as facts. If they don't let the Holy Spirit that they're learning about begin to teach them, it will remain information that will make them more religious, maybe a little smarter, but it won't make them any more useful in the kingdom. It'll be stuff they know, but not life they live. What happens? He's giving us a chance to repent right now. He's giving us an opportunity to change our mind and say, I don't want to be a church that doesn't include the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be a church that doesn't expect God to be God. I don't want to be a church that that expects when we come in, we're going to sing the songs, hear the message and decide whether we had a good service that day based on how good the music was and how good a job the preacher did. I don't want to be that church anymore. I want to be that church that every time we come together, we come with the full intent of coming into his presence. And whether we have a good Sunday or not, it's whether we are willing to let ourselves go long enough to surrender ourselves to step into his presence and see what he will do. That will determine whether we had a good Sunday or not. I want to be that church. I want to change my mind away from what I used to believe church was all about. And I want to be that church that says, I have no plan. I have no agenda. I have nothing to do except say those words God gave me to be obedient to those things he's shown me. I don't want to be anything else. We have to change our mind. And he's giving us an opportunity right now. And he says, if you don't, you're going to see a church that's dying on a sickbed. See any of that going on? Lots and lots and lots. Church is dying a little bit at a time. There is no coffin, just a sickbed. And we become more atrophied all the time. The reference to adultery is important because I think it was both literal and spiritual in its reach. I think it was talking about both. Those who would yield and accept another God have committed adultery with whom they worship, the ones that they are connecting with. And again, the sickbed reference used here is not to clear as to the degree of consequences. The simplest picture includes the atrophy that occurs when we are committed to a life without exercise and without function. The opportunity to change and repent is still open to those who will actually change their mind. Verse 23 and 24, and I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Speaking very specifically to anyone who is very performance driven, he's saying, I can measure you correctly, and I will let you have your works. Verse 24, but unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, and I will put upon you none other burden. So he's carving out this group. He's saying among you, there is a group who hasn't fallen into that trap. There is a group among you who will not receive that teaching and that the effects of what Satan is doing. So he begins to address that group. And please notice the difference. For those who were willing to not take on those aspects of joining themselves to the world, that adultery with someone that really has destruction in mind instead of good and godliness. He says, unto you, the rest of you, as many as have not received this doctrine, I won't put on you any other burden, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. He's saying, be faithful, be steady in what you already believe, what you already know, and don't be tempted. Don't be pulled in to something that is not the truth. Verse 25, but that which you have already, hold fast till I come. There were many faithful, uncompromising Christians with a simple instruction, verse 26. 
And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. That is a tremendous promise. We feel like what we say here and what we do here is small. We don't feel, I don't feel, that what I say here has the potential of changing much of what's going on around the world. But I will admit, my vision of smallness does not match what God sees. It's so hard for us to imagine ourselves to be something greater than what our imaginations can create. But that's not true for God. He has established things, stated things, said with certainty things that we know what happened in Bethlehem. Here's a place that no one would have imagined what could have been born there. The guy that we uh, had lunch with a few months ago that was from Bill Johnson's church in, in Redding, California, when we had lunch with him in Lubbock, he said, it's amazing. He said, across my lifetime, every major revival has started in communities with less than 500 people. He said, every single time. He said, I hadn't thought about that until just a, it was talking a few days ago. And he started going through these, about these major breakouts of just a, unbelievable revival and great visitation from God in these places. And he said, every one of them he had been involved with had been in a town that the, that the population was under 500. God does not see the economy of this world the way we see it. It doesn't have to be done in the largest. As a matter of fact, we've understood very well that he's not looking at the enormity of the church. He's looking at the enormity of the hearts within it because with a few, he can change the world. And he says, to those who overcome, to those who will not succumb to that, to those who will hold fast to what they know, I guarantee you for churches and pastors, it gets so tempting because if a pastor ever believes that the congregation is the one that's feeding him, what will he automatically do? What will automatically happen if I were to believe that you somehow were feeding me? I would have to make sure every week I didn't upset you. I would have to start playing some kind of a game, hoping that what I would say, you know, maybe make it a little funnier, maybe make it a little bit lighter, maybe make it a little less deep. Something that when you left out of here, you'd feel good so that you'd plan on coming back next week. That's the game that we begin to play if we ever believe. If I were to hint in, within myself that you somehow fed me. It's just not true. If God can't sustain me, I won't do it. But I have no doubt that as long as I'm here in obedience, his ability to sustain me is, is absolutely perfect. So he says to those who overcome, he's looking for those hearts, looking for those men and women, looking for those boys and girls who were steadfast in their faith, understanding. I had a person in my office today and they asked, me, said, where did you learn this? I was sitting with a person in, in, a, in a restaurant yesterday sharing some, just some very simple things. And she was, I think she said she was 76. She said, why am I just hearing this? I said, ma'am, I don't know. That was the first time I'd ever met with her. I don't know. I don't know your story. I don't know, I don't know why you haven't heard this. She said, I'm glad to hear it and almost angry. And I said, well, I'm very sorry about that. But God has promised you that he'll give you back the years that the locusts have devoured. It's never too late. He will restore to you everything lost if he finds in you that heart to let him be God. Don't overcome, hold fast. He said, to them, I will give power over the nations. Verse 27, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. This is not a gentle picture. It's a quotation from Psalm 2 where he speaks of this authority to, that's given to the Messiah when he rules over the earth. In that day, righteousness will be in force and those who rebel against Jesus will be dashed to pieces. It says like a clay pot when it's hit by an iron rod. That's the reference that he's using here. We don't see ourselves with that kind of authority. I wish we did. 
Because what can we use as an iron rod? What should we use as an iron rod? What will tear these things apart faster than anything else? If we have the nerve to do it, tell the truth. Tell the truth. It's amazing to watch people's clay pot fall apart in the presence of truth. It will so drastically change the world. And I like this piece the best. He says, to those who overcome, they will rule among the nations. And then he says, and I will give that person the morning star. What does that mean? Who is the morning star according to Revelation 22? Jesus is. What's the gift to those who overcome? What do they get in recognition for standing fast? They get him. Again, I had a conversation with, you know, some of you will recognize the name. His name is Michael. He's the guy that we helped move from Fort Worth to Hamilton a few months ago. And uh, some of you knew that. Some of you didn't know we helped him, but uh, we, we paid for his move because he needed some help. He got relocated in Hamilton. He's doing very, very well. But I talked to him earlier in the week and he said, Randy, I just had this most remarkable breakthrough. He was in tears. And he said, I have so long wanted to do something big for God. He said, I wanted my life to be big in his kingdom and I want to do big things. He said, by my own decisions, he said, I have squandered so much of that opportunity. But he said, crying out to God this morning, and he said that God very specifically said, Michael, it's not big things. And this is a strange phrase, but he says, I want big intimacy. Not a word that we typically describe in terms of big, but he's saying all that I've ever wanted, everything that will come out of your story will come out of the normity of our relationship. Not big things, not doing big things. It's having a big intimacy with me. Conceptually, it's, it's strange because we have this strange concept in our head that if I have a relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God, there's a whole lot of things I have to surrender. It's like, okay, I, I know it's important and I want to have a great relationship with God. What pulls us away from that more than anything else? What seems to be missing in this relationship that I have with Jesus, with, with God? What seems to be missing? What do you enjoy about relationships with one another? What do you enjoy with the relationship with your husband or your wife? Intimacy, physical intimacy. So we believe that when we have a relationship with God, what we're doing is we're saying, I want this relationship, but I know I have to surrender physical intimacy. Does that sound right? That, that logically, reasonably doesn't sound right because it seems like that having a relationship with God should supersede what I could have with you spiritually, what I could have with you mentally and emotionally, but also what I could have with you physically. Because we don't expect God to touch us. We don't expect God to have a physical relationship with us. Guess what? He does. And if we would recognize it when it's him, we would be overwhelmed by the physical intimacy that we have with the supernatural God. But we kind of dismiss it. God's saying, if you do that to me, you don't know who I am and you haven't correctly measured me as the God that I am. If I made you with a desire to be touched and as God, I can't do it, then I am less than what I, the desire that I created in you. It's not true. Big intimacy. And Jesus said to those who overcome, I will give you me. In verse 29, where we end, and he that has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I love the way that ends. We will never know the truth. We will never process the truth or consider the truth if it's not first delivered by the Holy Spirit. And any time that we shut him out in any way, intentional or unintentional, then we will not be able to hear what God has to say to the church. 
He speaks through the Spirit. And if we don't trust the Spirit, we will not hear the voice of God. We'll hear the best opinions of men and the best sermons that, that men and women can prepare. But we won't hear the voice of God if we don't hear it by His Spirit. I think we know this, and I'll end with this, but I think there's an expectation, or I hope there is, that when you enter in here on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or whenever you're around and I'm teaching, I hope that you know and can trust that what you're about to hear is coming from the Holy Spirit, or I have no desire to speak it. But what should be on your mind? What should be happening in you as the receiver of this? If you expect me to deliver it by the Spirit, how should you receive it? By the Spirit. I will promise you when that begins to occur, it's life-changing. When you sit there and you take it in as information and and knowledge, it's great to do. But your responsibility, our responsibility, anytime we are actively engaged in church, is that we speak because the Spirit says speak, but we also hear because the Spirit says hear. Both pieces of that have got to be Him if there's going to be any great difference made. Again, it's just Sunday morning was a great example because the church service was basically over and we were singing when Kate had this very clear vision of what she was supposed to do. And all the ministry time came out of what she saw, the great difference. So what was she doing? Simply being obedient. And the difference was made by the Holy Spirit who could show somebody else something because she was listening when she was sitting there in the Spirit. Lord, we thank you that we can come together. And I pray, Lord, that that with everything that you're pointing out, with everything that you're saying about these churches, that we will linger on these passages like we had tonight. For those who overcome, the great blessing of overcoming, the great blessing of letting ourselves go, letting us surrender and recognizing, Lord, that the great difficulty of standing before the judgment seat is going to be that we're going to look back across our life and we're going to recognize that there were portions of our life that we would not surrender. With all the things that we can list and all the things that we could point to, we have to recognize, Lord, that you have a great desire to expose those things that we're not surrendering because what we're doing is we're holding those back to please ourselves in front of a God who wants to see himself in us. Lord, we just thank you that you have promised. You show us here clearly in this truth. For those who overcome, you have great promises. And even the best one, that you will give us the morning star. That you will give us yourself. What an unbelievable gift. I won't ever have to wonder if I'm alone. I won't be. I won't ever have to wonder if I'm enough. Because I will be. I won't ever have to wonder if I have the words to say. Because I do. I won't ever have to wonder if the love that I have is enough because I will be certain, because I have in me the morning star. Thank you, Lord, for the picture, the truth of that, that we can walk today as we receive the Holy Spirit and let you do in us and through us what we could not possibly do, that the evidence of our lives would be you and not us. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.